Let's go ahead and turn to God's Word, Acts 16, uh, verses 16 through 24. This is what the author Luke says. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the, jail, the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Amen. Early on in my time as a youth pastor here at FAC, um, I recall one particular day uh, when I couldn't seem to get anything done because there were countless interruptions coming across my desk throughout the day. It, it, it didn't feel like I could go more than a half hour uh, without being interrupted. And so I remember at the end of the day, venting to Pastor Mark, who was our senior pastor at the time, and, and hoping to get some empathy or compassion from him. And I explained to him how frustrating of a day it was. And I explained to him all that was on my to-do list and how I had ministry to do. And I couldn't do any ministry because of such interruptions. Uh, and Mark just smiled and kind of chuckled at me. And then he said, you know, Mike, the longer that you're in this job, the more you'll understand that the interruptions are the ministry. The interruptions are the ministry. That conversation has stuck with me over the years. And as I've gained a healthy understanding of God's providence, knowing that nothing happens by accident, right? That God is sovereign in all things and all times, even in the interruptions, I find myself embracing the interruptions these days. As I've grown personally, I, I realize that there is powerful and effective ministry to be done in the context of interruptions. Yes, you can accomplish wonderful, great things on your planned to-do list, but don't write off the wonderful and great things that you can do in how you respond and how you handle the interruptions. You may have heard the term divine intervention, but I also believe that there is such a thing as divine interruption. And this is what we see in the story that we read just a moment, a moment ago. We see how Paul and his team experience and handle and witness divine interruption. We see how Paul responds, and then eventually we actually see the fallout. We're going to walk through each of those aspects this morning in the text. The, the, the interruption, the response, and the fallout. Um, but we begin this morning with this divine uh, interruption that comes in the form of a demon-possessed slave girl. 
Now we know that they were interrupted because the opening verse in our text this morning states, as we were going to the place of prayer. They intended to return to this place of prayer that we looked at last week where they witnessed to a group of women. Um, they had no intention in this text of meeting a demon-possessed girl that day, right? Exercising a demon was not on their to-do list. But regardless of intention, they are indeed interrupted. And by the sounds of it, this is no ordinary interruption. This is not simply just a flat tire. This is a significant issue. And Luke, once again, similarly to last week, gives us a picture of a woman that Paul and his team interact with. And it's a much different portrait than that of the woman we spoke about last week. Right? If you recall uh, from our text from last week, we read about a woman, we looked at a woman named Lydia. Uh, Lydia was a successful businesswoman. She was independent. You, you look at her picture and you're saying she's in pretty good shape. She's got her life together. The girl that we meet this week, however, is none of that. Unlike Lydia, this girl is in control of nothing. We read that she is a slave girl. And yes, she earns money like Lydia, but it belongs to somebody else. There is a tragic contrast here in the text between Lydia and this nameless girl. And while Lydia's portrait is one that would be revered, that you would look at and be pleased, it would be pleasing to the eye, the portrait of this girl should evoke an emotion of of sadness, of, of maybe compassion and empathy. Let's take a look at the the picture that Luke has painted. First, he calls her a slave girl. This designation, this title, um, seems to suggest that this was a very young woman. There's actually a chance that she was a teenager, or perhaps even a child. And this young girl, this young teenager or child was demon-possessed. It says that she had a spirit of divination. Um, which basically supernaturally allowed her to predict the future. Now, this whole idea um, of fortune-telling and and, and, and being profitable may sound foreign to us in our own context, but in this culture, the art of soothsaying, which is what she's doing, was very, it was a profitable business. People made a lot of money either predicting the future or trying to predict the future. Unfortunately, though, this young girl who is clearly in bondage to a spirit, which is awful enough, um, she, she is also in bondage physically. Right? There are people who are taking advantage of her. Right? Yes, she's a slave girl. Yes, she makes money, but not for herself, for her owners. And you'll notice that it's not just one owner, but it's owner's Plural. I don't know about you, but when I think about slavery in the context of Scripture, I often think in that time in that culture that there were one or more slaves who were owned by just one individual or they were owned by one family. But that's clearly not the case here. With owners, plural. It seems to suggest that she has at least two masters. 
You see, she's not just a slave, but she is a victim of a network. She is a victim of a human trafficking network of some sorts. And this is a clear example of human trafficking as business partners exploit her for personal gain and see her as nothing more than an investment. In the eyes of her masters, she's a business opportunity. So she is not only tormented by a spirit, an evil spirit, she is tormented by the evil hands of humanity. One author writes that this poor young girl's situation is not all that different from those trapped in the modern slave trade, exploited by what they have. No name, no personal identity, no dignity. They are viewed as less than people, commodities to be bought, sold, and traded. And one of the most tragic parts of the, about the portrait of this girl is that the community, the culture in which she lives, wouldn't have even batted an eye at the situation. This is culturally acceptable. In regards to the spirit, most people in the secular culture at this time would have considered this spirit as beneficial, or they would be neutral to it at best. They wouldn't see a problem with this. This is the portrait that Luke paints of this young girl. And as we come into verse 17 and 18, we see her interacting with, with Paul. And verse 17 and 18, it's a confusing couple of verses, right? As I was studying this, I found myself with more questions as I went um, than answers because there's not too much clarity uh, about how these events played out. Right, right. In verse 17, we read that this girl followed Paul and his team around, and we get the picture that, uh, that she's like a lost puppy dog, just, just kind of attaching herself to this team, following, and she's just shouting out to whoever will listen, and she, she's shouting out, hey, these men are, are servants of the Most High God who proclaim uh, to you the way of salvation. This is not subtle at all as she just kind of follows them. And we get the idea that she actually kept this up for several days. This implies that she just wouldn't go away. There was daily contact with her as Paul sought opportunities to, to preach. She, she was just always around. So you can imagine... Paul and his team kind of waking up, getting ready for their day, making their way out the door, and that girl is just kind of waiting for them. Right? You, you know there's people in your life, you see them coming, and you're all like, ah, oh, here we go again. Here they come. This is probably what Paul is thinking. Here she comes again. Any parent of young children actually understands this with their own kids sometimes that just kind of follow, follow them along wherever they go, right? There's nothing so humiliating as having to lock yourself in the bathroom just to get yourself a moment of privacy, right? Here they are again. Here she is again, coming and, and, and causing a scene. Now, there's something to be said about Paul's uh, patience here. It takes him actually several days before he does anything about it. 
I have to believe, even though it doesn't say this, that he tried to share the gospel with this girl, that he tried to be gracious to this girl, but eventually he just said, hey, enough is enough. We got to do something about this. We need to take care of it. He grows so annoyed is the reason that we're given that he turns his attention to the spirit within the girl and says, hey, you know what? That's it. You're done. And he commands the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ to come out. And the spirit obeys. Now you, you read verses 17 and 18, and this is where the more questions than answers comes in. And there's some confusion because you think, well, now hold on. Isn't what she was saying true? Like, isn't that a good thing? They are servants of the Most High God. And they are proclaiming the way of salvation. And so why on earth is Paul clearly annoyed about this? Why is he so irritated? There's no reason to believe that she was hostile toward them. She just wouldn't leave them alone. And so what's going on here? Why does Paul react and respond in this way? This is an instance in Scripture where if we were there, we would have all the answers. We would understand the full context. But uh, unfortunately, being so far removed from the situation, we just simply don't know 100%. I read about five different sources on these verses, and I'm pretty sure that I got five different answers for why he responded in this way. It's impossible to know why Paul was so annoyed without some conjecture by our part. Um, however, this is what we know. Right? We know that Paul, we, we know of Paul's passion to share the gospel. We know that priority number one for Paul was to tell people about Jesus, even at great cost to himself. We know that Paul values the mission and the expansion of the good news of Jesus above anything else. And so while these verses are somewhat cloudy, we can safely assume that what was happening with the slave girl and why Paul put a stop to it is because she was doing something that was contrary to gospel work, right? Somehow what she was doing to Paul's estimation was actually hindering the advancement of the gospel. She wasn't helping the ministry as it may seem to us. She was actually hurting it. And so with that, I think one of the strongest arguments for why Paul reacts in the way he does here is that perhaps Paul didn't appreciate the connection or the association that was being made between the gospel and a demonic source. He didn't like that while what she was saying was true, it was coming from a less than reputable source. Perhaps her proclamation could actually mislead people because of her association with this demon. It would be no different today if a preacher of a church handed a sermon script to somebody who publicly dabbled in modern witchcraft and said, you can have the pulpit, you can preach as long as you preach the sermon word for word what I give you. Because as long as what you're saying is true, then it's okay. No, I would have a great problem with that and I would hope that you would too. And that's kind of what may be happening here. Right, right. Paul was patient with this slave girl 
But if he, would, if he allowed this demon to continue, one of two things would happen. In regards to the people Paul was trying to reach, this spirit would either confuse them at best, or it would discredit the message of Jesus at worst. Perhaps Paul didn't want this message of freedom and grace to be attached to someone who is clearly under the influence, not of the Holy Spirit, but a demonic spirit. He's saying, hey, you're tapping in to the wrong power source, and I'm not going to let you do that. This young girl was saying all the right things, but drawing from the wrong power source, which is why I think it's so significant that when Paul does cast out the spirit, he does it publicly, and he does it in the, name of the, uh, in the name of Jesus, and the Spirit obeys Jesus. Almost as if Paul is demonstrating where the ultimate power comes from. What this demon does, maybe to discredit the gospel, Paul turns it around and gives credibility to the saving power of the gospel by releasing this girl literally from spiritual bondage And he does all of this in Jesus' name. He proclaims the true and proper and ultimate power source. Now, unfortunately, we don't know what happened to the girl after this. There's no indication here that she became a believer. And while she was freed from spiritual bondage, there's no indication that she's been freed from physical bondage from her owners. Luke doesn't give that information here, but the attention does shift, right? It turns from the slave girl to the slave girl's owners in verse 19. And in the the verse 19 and following, we actually see significant fallout for Paul and Silas because these owners have just lost a significant source of income. You can imagine how mad they are. Right in your own place of business, even if it's a if it's an ethical business, you you make uh, money on the moral high ground, not doing things that are wrong. If you lost a main source of your income, you'd be very very upset. That would be hard, and this is what's happening with these men. However, we we see where their hearts are. Right, they they care more about money and business than they do about salvation. They care more about money and business than the spiritual and physical freedom of this marginalized young girl. This is downright evil. And they're ready to make Paul and Silas pay for it. Right? So so they take Paul and Silas. It says they seized them. They aggressively grabbed them. They dragged them to the middle of the marketplace, which is where the magistrates would sit. And the magistrates were the the local authorities and they sought out to make a case before the magistrates why Paul and Silas should be punished for their actions. But I want you to notice their charge and how it actually changes a little bit. Their story changes. They tell the magistrates, I think it's in verse 20, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. For the accusers, what starts off as a personal issue with a personal loss, they actually now manipulate it into a cultural 
and political issue. This is a social attack on Paul and Silas. These owners don't appeal on the basis of their lost income, but that their very life was challenged. And they say, oh, by the way, not just our lives have been challenged, but us as Romans, the entire community here has been challenged by these two men. This is really anti-Semitic language. Right, right. They're saying, hey, this isn't just you versus us because you cost us something. No, it's because you are Jewish and you are against us as Romans and you are, are throwing the entire community into upheaval by pushing on these customs on us that, that we don't like and now we're going to make you pay for it. What started off ultimately as beef with Paul that they lost their income, they now frame the case in such a way and manipulate it to make it look like Paul and Silas are attacking Rome. They're not just attacking us, they're attacking Rome itself. Now let's dig into that a little bit. I want to remind you from last week in verse 12 that Luke was very intentional to refer to Philippi as a Roman colony. Right? This means that, that Philippi, although it was located in the region, the country of Macedonia, was legally like a Roman city, right? It carried the same government structure as a Roman city. And and, and the Philippian citizens had all the benefits uh, of a Roman citizen, right? Uh, One commentator describes that Roman colonies were effectively a piece of Rome that was just transplanted abroad, that it was taken and put somewhere else far away from Rome. And even beyond the government ramifications, Philippi's culture was heavily influenced by Roman culture. The people in Philippi observed what we call the imperial cult, which means that they worshiped the Roman emperor as a god. And even further than that, the city was home to the worship of many other gods. The Roman empire supported this idea of pluralism. You may be familiar with the term, but if you're not, this is what it is. Pluralism essentially says in less words that that many different religions and many different worldviews are all equal and they are all valid. Right, right. You you cannot say that this, this certain religion is invalid. You cannot say that it's not equal, that there are multiple paths to salvation, that there are multiple paths to ultimate fulfillment, that there are multiple paths to, uh, if you will, self-actualization. Right, And you get to choose which one is best for you, which one fits your needs, which one you prefer. It's like coming to a restaurant, and this is the menu approach to religion, where people are encouraged to just, just order what you like, right? And you get to pick and choose. As I was thinking about this and studying this, my mind immediately turned to Burger King, which sounds really weird. It's probably because I was just hungry. Um, it's not uncommon for me to think of food uh, when I do sermon prep. Um, but Burger King had that old slogan, right? If they still do, I don't know. Have it your way. You want your burger cooked this way? Absolutely, have it your way. You want the lettuce? You want to ditch the tomatoes? You want a side of fries? Go ahead, get the extra large fries. Because you're the one ordering and you're the most important person in the room right now. And you can have it your way. This is what pluralism teaches. Have it your way. 
And the product of pluralism is actually a great amount of religious tolerance. Rome promoted this idea that you can just believe whatever you want and we will be tolerant of you. We will accept you, right? Rome promoted this idea, but here's the thing about tolerance though, is that the tolerant are tolerant until they come up against the intolerant. And once the tolerant come up against the intolerant, the tolerant then become intolerant. You follow me? And this is what we see play out in these evil men as they appeal on the basis of their Roman culture, their Roman citizenship. In this time period, Roman policy was one of religious tolerance. Unless a religion is destructive to others, unless a religion had a direct impact on other lives, unless a, a religion uh, caused disorder, we will accept you. We will be tolerant of it. But the moment that you're out of line, in the moment that you cause public disorder, then we're going to step in and the authorities are going to take care of you. This is what we see playing out in this passage. Basically, what these slave owners are saying is, hey, you can live your life your way. You can have it your way. But as soon as your life impedes on my life, then we have a problem. The overall picture we have in this passage here is a Roman colony, heavily influenced by a Roman culture that says we are tolerant of all beliefs unless your belief intrudes on mine. I hope you can see the striking similarity between Roman culture and our own culture in which we live right now. This idea of pluralism is pervasive in our own society today. And there is a challenge at hand for us as we experience the same kind of opposition that Paul and his team came up against. We come up against the same attitude from people who say, look, believe whatever you want as long as it doesn't interfere with my life. But here's the problem, is that biblical Christianity, by definition, interferes with your life. That's the whole point of the gospel. Because in biblical Christianity, God is calling on people to submit to Jesus Christ. In this moment, if you've never turned to Jesus, I assure you that as we preach God's word, God is calling you right now to submit to Jesus, if you've never done that before. And God wants you to submit to Jesus, not just as Savior, but also as Lord. God is calling on people to allow Jesus to call the shots in their life. God is saying, no, you can't have it your way. Because your way leads to death. Instead, I want you to walk in my ways. Because I designed your life to be lived out in a certain way in relation to me. And you will find freedom and you will find life in my way. I want you to walk my way because my way is better for you. How could that not interfere with a single person? How could someone coming and saying, yeah, Jesus should be the Lord of your life, not be disruptive? 
I've got to wonder, I know I'm not the judge, right? And only God can judge if somebody has a true understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. But if you have followed Jesus and nothing has changed in your life, there's been no disruption whatsoever. I've got to wonder if you really do know who Jesus is. And so let me be clear. I know this this can be confusing because I've talked about uh, salvation before and how we don't need to earn it. And you might be thinking, now I'm confused. You're saying I don't need to change, but now I do need to change. Can you provide some clarity? I, I will. Our salvation is based on what Jesus did, right? And it comes to us free of charge. You don't have to change anything to come to know Jesus as your savior. But if what Jesus did is true, then his teaching is true. If Jesus truly overcame the grave, if Jesus truly died and rose again, as we claim, then what he teaches is valid. His death and resurrection give credibility to his teaching. And if his teaching is true, then there are many things in my life that I need to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, throw down at the foot of the cross. And so, yes, the gospel of message, message of Jesus is free, and I don't have to do anything to earn God's favor apart from uh, the life of Christ. But yes, it will also interfere with my way of life. The whole point of salvation is that God, through the work of Jesus, by the power of his spirit, delivered us from our way of life into his way of life. He delivered us from bondage, but he didn't just deliver us from something. He delivered us to something. He delivered us to holiness. He delivered us to righteousness. He delivered us to his way of life. We actually see this play out in the Old Testament with the Israelites. God delivers them from Egypt, delivers them from bondage, but he doesn't just leave them there. He then delivers them to righteousness by giving them the Ten Commandments. I have freed you from bondage. And so now come and walk in my ways. Ultimately, this message that we share will clash with the pluralistic uh, community in which we live. One commentator writes that uh, Christianity is not popular in today's pluralistic environment where acceptance and affirmation of other faiths is almost mandated as a part of healthy living. But it must be done because we believe that these forces, despite the temporary good that they may perform, serve to further entrance people in bondage to Satan. You see, we believe that although these other forms of religion may be producing what the world would define as good, but what's really happening is that these people are riding a luxury car of morality straight through the gates of hell. So we must be gracious. We must be patient with the culture that we live. But we must also stand firm in the exclusivity of Christ. Yes, we love the non-believer. Yes, we provide them tons and tons of grace. Yes, we reach out to them and meet them where they are. But there are some things, church, that we cannot budge on. And one of those is the exclusivity of Jesus, that he is the only way to a restored relationship with God. And then we need to be prepared for the fallout. Paul and Silas were dragged 
into the marketplace to face the authorities. They were stripped. They were severely flogged. They were thrown into prison without a real genuine trial. This type of punishment, uh, they only did, they reserved it for foreigners of Rome, for people that were outside of Rome. And it's okay because next week we'll see the magistrates uh, with the proverbial egg on their face. Because what they don't realize in the heat of this moment is that Paul and Silas are actually Roman citizens. Oops. And what that shows us is that ultimately this dispute between Paul and these slave owners, this isn't an issue of culture. They tried to make it an issue of culture. They tried to make it a social issue, but it's not. Their Roman citizenship didn't save them in this moment. No, it's not an issue of my culture clashes with your culture. No, this is an issue of the heart. And Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is the only one who can change the direction of the heart away from ourself and our way of life and turn it towards God and his ways. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are thankful for your word that instructs us how to live in a way that first and foremost glorifies you, Lord. But we also believe that your, your ways are better for us. So I would ask, Father, as believers, even for myself, it's a daily battle, Lord, to, to just hold on to our way of life. We recognize, Father, that we've been freed from the bondage of sin and that we've ultimately been freed from the punishment of sin, Father. But, but sin in our hearts still has this uh, intrusive, destructive force in our lives that calls us to live our, our own way. And so would you first forgive us of that, and then would you rid us of that hold that sin has on us? And Father, I would ask that as we live out your ways, the outside world would look on us and say, something is different. They have something that I don't. And would we be ready to stand and tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ? In your holy name I pray. Amen.